The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And by the way, I know some of you do not like PayPal. I understand. Some of you like it, some of you don't. So for that reason, we have another vendor that we're using for collection of payments. This one is called Stripe. All you have to do is just go to our website and click on subscribe. You'll see the PayPal option, which is still up available to everyone, but also the new Stripe option for you. I know a lot of people have contacted us for years and we haven't been able to find one that we trust in addition to PayPal uh, because PayPal has a worldwide reach. Some of the other ones did not accept payments from certain countries, but I believe Stripe does also international payments. So take a look. If you haven't subscribed because of the PayPal issue, I hope that you can do so now. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, want to write to me, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website. According to tonight's guest, the dark horse of the New World Order is not communism, socialism, or even fascism. It is technocracy. Tonight's guest will connect the dots of modern globalization in a way that has never been seen before, so that you can clearly understand the globalization plan, its perpetrators, and its intended endgame. In the heat of the Great Depression during the 1930s, prominent scientists and engineers proposed a utopian energy-based economic system called technocracy that would be run by those same scientists and engineers instead of elected politicians. Although this radical movement lost momentum by 1940, it regained status when it was conceptually adopted by the elitist Trilateral Commission in 1973 to become the so-called New International Economic Order. In the ensuing 41 years, the modern expression of technocracy and the new international economic order is clearly seen in global programs such as Agenda 21, Sustainable Development, Green Economy, Councils of Governments, Smart Growth, Smart Grid, Total Awareness Surveillance Initiatives, and more. Tonight's guest contends that the only logical outcome of technocracy is scientific dictatorship, as already seen in dystopian literature such as Brave New World by Aldous Huxley in 1984 by George Orwell. 
both of whom looked straight into the face of technocracy when it was still in its infancy. Tonight, we challenge you to new levels of insight and understanding into the clear and present danger of technocracy and how Americans might be able to reject it once again. Tonight's special guest is Patrick Wood, an author and lecturer who has studied elite globalization policies since the late 1970s, when he partnered with the late Anthony C. Sutton to co-author Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2. He remains a leading expert on the elitist Trilateral Commission, their policies and achievements in creating their self-proclaimed new international economic order. An economist by education, a financial analyst and writer by profession, and an American constitutionalist by choice. And his website is technocracy.news, and he joins us directly from Mesa, Arizona, not too far away from me. Hello, Mr. Wood, and welcome to Veritas. Thanks for being with us today. Well, great. I'm looking forward to the program today, Mel. My pleasure. May I call you Patrick? Absolutely. Well, this is a great, great topic that I've been wanting to discuss for a very long time. Let's begin by defining the term technocracy. Wow. Well, there's uh, there's a lot to the concept, uh, as you know. I know you have my book and stuff, and you've seen some of it. But let me read you a definition that was uh, penned by the Technocrat magazine back in 1938. And your listeners will have to appreciate right off the bat that technocracy was an actual movement back in the 1930s, quite large, actually. And um, they had chapters all over America uh, and through Canada, um, and they published magazines and stuff. So the Technocrat magazine was one of their official publications. And in 1938, this is a sample of how they define technocracy. And they said, quote, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population, population, close quote. That's what they said. If you go to the dictionary, uh, Webster's or some online dictionary, and look up technocracy, you'll find the first definition will say government by technicians. Uh, possibly it will say something like, you know, management of society by technical experts. And that is a common definition that's in use around the, ro- around the world. But technocracy with a capital T, uh, that was invented or coined back in the 1930s. It's a replacement economic system based on energy distribution and consumption and run by engineers, scientists, and technicians. This is uh, a little bit otherworldly because you and I and everyone listening to this program, we know nothing but free enterprise. That's all we've ever had in our country. That's just what's made our country great, by the way. But uh, we don't know any other economic system except the one we have, and it, yes, it has problems, but those problems aside, it is the one we have, and it is the one that's made us great, uh, you know, as we are today. Um, and technocracy proposed to change all that, to throw it out. Uh, they thought it was going to die back then anyway, as during the Great Depression. And they were certain that they, the scientists and engineers, could successfully run society according to science, uh, according to their scientific method. And uh, it was a pretty wacky scheme, quite honestly. But uh, the American public rejected it by the end, mostly by the end of the 1930s. And we see a resurgence of it today, unfortunately. Um, and well, that's what we're going to talk about. So that's kind of in a nutshell what technocracy is, a replacement economic system 
based on energy distribution and consumption to be run by scientists and engineers. So what we have now are three pillars, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have capitalism, politics, and religion. Would technocracy be replacing or, or morphing these? Well, it, it would be replacing them, actually, altogether, because uh, you, the, three, uh, the three-legged stool that you mentioned here that, that our society sits upon requires uh, capitalism or free enterprise as an economic system. It requires <clears throat> some type of a moral base, uh, which in our country has been uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic based on the Bible. And the political system that we enjoy is a constitutional republic. There's a lot of dispute on that today, whether we are a constitutional republic anymore, but we'll leave that aside for now. But we need all three of these to be operating at the same time in order to have a healthy society. Now, our society is breaking down on a number of fronts, for sure. But technocracy would have to change all three legs of the stool. The economic system would change. The political governance system would have to change. Uh, because they envisioned getting rid of Congress altogether. They wanted uh, Roosevelt, when he got elected, just to declare himself dictator, uh, implement technocracy, and dismiss Congress. <laughs> so there. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, that's easy to say, isn't it? Uh, just dismiss Congress. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, I mean, going to have guns and tanks or what? I mean, how are you going to get them out of the, uh, you know, out of the Capitol? But um, uh, as far as the moral base is concerned, uh, that third leg uh, where – uh, religion and morality and so on, you know, philosophy p- played an important role in our country. Uh, the technocracy movement, kind of by definition, is atheistic. And they believe that the only um, the only source of truth in the universe is that which is discovered through science. So they don't believe there's any truth outside of science. So the end result of technocracy is scientism. In other words, the worship of science itself. And that becomes morality. That becomes the, uh, the religion, if you will, uh, the worship of science. Um, I know that sounds pretty twisted, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll put my right hand up and swear to it. <laughs> it's, it is twisted, but it, you know, that that's what it is. We have to look at it and accept it the way that they designed it. <laughs> when did your interest in globalism and the activities of the global elite begin? Oh, my. We're talking 1977. That's a long time ago. Um, I was a young financial analyst. Uh, actually, I was in Tucson, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I, I worked for a brokerage company and um, got in, you know, kind of got my feet wet. And uh, I moved up to Phoenix um, not too long after that. Uh, and. I started writing a newsletter and I was doing investment advisory work for some clients and I started running across this organization called the Trilateral Commission. I did not know what it meant. I was just a young guy, you know, out of college, stupid by and large, you know. That's all you know when you're when you're the second lieutenant on patrol and all you have is a compass, the, the military says you're the most dangerous man on earth. <laughs> so that was me, you know, I was like uh I had a little bit of knowledge and uh, you know college, some college and and uh I, you know, I, I looked at this stuff and I thought, man, I'm, I'm going crazy or something. I don't know what this means. But I, I ran across um, a guy down in New Orleans at a, confer- a gold conference, actually, that I went to speak at. He was there to speak, too. And we ended up, just by chance, having breakfast together one morning. 
and we started talking. Well, it turns out the, the guy was, uh, his name was Anthony Sutton. He was a professor or just formerly a professor at, uh, um, the, um, at Stanford University at the Hoover Institution for War, Peace, and Revolution. And he was a researcher there and an author, a very esteemed author, and he'd been forced out. And uh, they basically drop-kicked him because he started uh, touching, his research started touching this trilateral commission a little bit too closely. And the president of Stanford at the time was David Packard, um, the, the Hewlett Packard, Hewlett -Packard co founder. Yeah. And he just happened to be a member of the Trilateral Commission. <laughs> so uh, maybe Tony had a, who knows, he might have had a discussion with him or something, not realizing that, that he was a member of the Trilateral Commission. But anyway, they, they uh, discovered his research track and where it was going, and they said, you're out of here. And Well, anyway, I met Sutton shortly after that. And we commiserated and talked, and he opened my eyes. He said, yeah, I've been looking at this, too, from a slightly different angle because he had an economics background. He was a professor of economics. And he said, I've been looking at this for some time now, and there's definitely a, a, a rat in the woodpile here. And we realized before we were done with breakfast that we had a huge story. And that we needed to do something about it. We couldn't just sit on it and ignore it. So we committed. We shook hands. We committed to write a newsletter right there on the spot. <laughs> and that's how I started. It's kind of funny. But uh, that that's that's what it was. That was the catalyst. And we collaborated for about four years and wrote a newsletter called Trilateral Observer. Out of that, we produced two books, uh, Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, those became the definitive work on the Trilateral Commission back in those days. And to my knowledge, they still stand pretty much as the definitive work. Um, nobody's really written a whole lot since then. But that's how I got started. And if I had not had that background and experience, uh, when I just, if, if I were to discover technocracy at all in, a few years ago, I would not have had any understanding on how to place it in context historically. I, I, I just wouldn't know. I would not have understood what I was looking at. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of curious how it all comes around, isn't it? Um, you know, I look back at the, these seemingly random events and I can give more credit to divine appointment than I can anything else to, you know, kind of put this whole thing together. You know, f funny, you, you worked in Tucson. I, I'm in Tucson now and after working for a finan the financial industry for many years, I used to be a young financial analyst back, back in 1987. And I remember how I used to look at the Federal Reserve and we had to divide government entities between, you know, nonprofits and, and for-profit corporations. And I always found interesting how we categorized the Federal Reserve as a government entity. That always bothered me because I knew better, but we can discuss that later. When we hear the term technocracy... We may think of it as, as a new term. It sounds, you know, like technology, something modern. But wasn't there a popular movement in the 1930s, as you mentioned, called technocracy? And if so, what did they accomplish back then? Well, you know, um, the, the, the genesis of technocracy is kind of strange. During the 1920s, there was a lot of talk about it. And a lot of prominent scientists and engineers were having discussion groups and stuff back east. And in 1932... The movement actually congealed and descended upon Columbia University, and uh, Columbia University uh, received them with wide open arms. They thought that was, a, you know, just the greatest thing, state of the art, political theory or whatever. 
And uh, technocracy was given a home in the basement of Hamilton Hall, which was the main building at Columbia back in those days. And they um, uh, were doing projects there. But it, it was discovered that one of the co-founders of technocracy, uh, Howard Scott, turned out to be a fraud. Uh, he had claimed that he had an engineering degree from somewhere. And he claimed that he was like, you know, a prestigious type of guy, you know, engineering wise, but he wasn't. It turns out he didn't even have a degree. And Columbia realized that they had been suckered, you know, like they were taken for a ride on this whole thing. And it wasn't techno it wasn't the ideology of technocracy per se, but it, w it had more to do just with the fact that, that Howard Scott was just a con man and somehow he'd hitched a star to to the name technocracy. So anyway, um, Columbia University dropkicked the whole technocracy movement out of there. Uh, those engineers at Columbia that were involved with it, there were several, they just went back to their departments and they tenured eventually and retired and died. <laughs> um, but they knew better at that point, just stay, stay away from this, just leave it alone. Um, but in 1934, by 1934, uh, the two original co-founders, uh, Howard Scott and M. King Hubbard, uh, collaborated in, uh, on a corporation papers, and they filed incorporation in New York City in 1930, actually late, late 1933, I think. Um, and that's how the movement was started. They started it, as, they founded it as a membership organization. You had to pay dues, in other words, to belong to it, and... Uh, before the thing was done, there was over a half a million card-carrying members and dues-paying members of Technocracy, Inc. around the country and Canada. That's a pretty big movement. Um, I have a picture, an original picture that was taken of one of their big rallies uh, down over in uh, uh, the Hollywood Bowl, of all places, right? It was pretty new back in those days. But I have a picture of a big rally they had at Hollywood Bowl. And I tell you what, it was packed. There was hardly a seat open. Uh, so when they called meetings and rallies and whatever, a lot of people showed up, um, kind of, kind of, kind of like a Trump rally today, right? <laughs> <laughs> you get people lining up around the corner. Um, but technocracy had a big run during the early and mid thirties. Um, they were very popular, especially in Canada. They had lots of members in Canada as well. And uh, Howard Scott and the other leading technocrats would go around the country, the continent, talking to groups and stuff that had been set up in local cities. And it was it kind of had a chapter structure where um, I wouldn't want to say it's like Kiwanis or, you know, Rotary or something. But they had chapters in different cities and they all had different names. But the word technocracy would appear in it. And they met on a monthly basis to to talk about and argue and, and you know, do futuristic studies and stuff on technocracy. And uh, so Scott and Hubbard went around, spoke to these groups, addressed them. They had rallies. They had big uh, – I have some pictures of a, uh, a caravan that uh, went from Phoenix, Arizona, of all places, over to California, the Golden Gate Bridge. They had probably 150 automobiles and trucks and buses and stuff in their caravan. Back then, it was all a two-lane road, of course. So it was a very impressive-looking caravan, I have to say. And uh, they held a big rally uh, for technocracy up in um, San Francisco at the Golden Gate Park up there. And then they all drove back, I guess. I didn't have any pictures on the return trip. But um, 
they had a lot of activities going on. They they had cars that were painted with technocracy gray paint. They had orange hubcaps and. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.